And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the show all about Marvel's man without fear, blind lawyer by day, superhero by night, Daredevil, along with his enemies and allies. A proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave, and we are back. After a long hiatus, I am back at work, and, you know, I was playing around with the different topics and things I wanted to cover, and for a while I was starting to feel stagnated, a little in a rut. And what I did is I just kind of wiped the slate clean of from the stuff I was going to cover and decided to go a completely different direction. Along comes this fresh idea, and here's the thing, podcasting has ruined comics in the past for me. Once you put on your podcast goggles and you really go through an issue, you never quite look at it the same way again. There are issues I absolutely loved as a casual reader, but when I went into them, I found all the flaws, I broke them apart, and I kind of wanted to find out if it can work in reverse. Can podcasting about a book redeem it? Can it bring a book that I've hated into a light where, hey, I kind of like this, or am I going to rage quit it? Daredevil Yellow is a perfect example of how things have been ruined. used to love that book, but I couldn't make it all the way through to the end, as far as coverage. So starting this time around, I am looking at Daredevil Father. For the longest time, I remembered hating this book. I mean, absolutely loathing it for some reason, but I can't remember why. I can't remember the details of this miniseries. And I began to wonder if my dislike of it was fair. So I decided to put it on this docket here. And to be honest with you, it's been less than 24 hours since I made that decision. Yesterday evening, which was a Tuesday, I decided to do this issue. Tonight is a Wednesday and I'm recording it. So it's on until I rage quit it. Or I may make it all the way through. I've been surprised so far. But I'm kind of jumping ahead a little. Another reason to put this on the docket is... Since I have pretty much every issue of Daredevil, either in essential form, in floppy form, in omnibus, or in digital from Comixology thanks to a recent sale, or sale from several months ago at this point, I've decided to go ahead and not renew my Marvel Unlimited. Not because of a quality thing, but why am I spending 70 bucks a year when I've got tons and tons of Daredevil material here? Since I've only got a few months left of Marvel Unlimited before it ends, I'm going to scoot some of that material that's still on there that I don't own up to the front, including Daredevil Father. Now, I will give you full disclosure, I am not reading ahead. I'm taking it issue by issue. So each issue gets its due before I go to the next one. So the episode is recorded and edited before I touch the next issue. So no guarantee that I'm going to make it to the end of this series without throwing my hands up and saying, nope, nope, done. But so far, so good. And so I'm not going to spend too much time here in the preamble. I'm going to jump into the issue right after a podcast promo break. But I will say this. It is good to be back. I put my Daredevil lanyard on when I went to work today and it was like Mel Gibson at the end of Signs putting that collar back on. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Thank you all for your patience as I tried out some other creative avenues and found out they just didn't work. Good to be back with Daredevil, which I will be back with Daredevil right after this podcast promo break with Daredevil Father number one. Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast. 
We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great. So, what should we talk about? Something no one else is talking about. Batman. <sighs> Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run. But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. New episodes drop on the 14th and 28th of every month. The show and the website, www.overlookeddarknight.com, launch in May of 2017 from the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network. Now, there's not a lot of background to put into this issue. It does kind of stand alone to some extent. I will mention that this was written by Joe Cazada, who was editor-in-chief of Marvel at the time. But as I went through this issue, there were a few things that I've made, uh, cases I've made, I guess you could say, throughout this show about Mad, about Daredevil, and the nature of his heroic identity. The first is the idea that Daredevil is a sneaky lawyer's trick, a way to get around a promise Matt made to Jack Murdock when he was a kid to hit the books and not people. As he's out as Daredevil, it's not technically Matt doing it, but Daredevil. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's a little flimsy, but when you commit to it to the level that Matt has, it does have some validity. That idea is at play in this issue. Also, the fact that Jack Murdock was not necessarily the greatest dad in the world. That he was very flawed and very, very prideful. I've talked in the past how he made a choice in the ring to go ahead and not take the dive, knowing the consequences, which is a selfish action that he did based on his own pride. But Matt thinks of Jack in this very idealized, whitewashed way in terms of he was a great dad. He was the greatest man I ever knew. Overlooking the flaws as much as he acknowledges them. Matt overlooks and justifies so much that it's bordering on a, sort of an abusive relationship. 
Like somebody takes abuse and justifies why they're taking it. It's something that happens every day. It's not quite Stockholm Syndrome, but you're getting the idea. This has been a theme I've come back to a few times. Another is failure. Matt keeps trying things and failing, and he's motivated by that failure and the fear of failure in a lot of ways. His first outing at Fogwell's gym did not go the way he wanted. Fixer never faced actual justice, and so Matt keeps on going. So those are some of the themes I've talked about on the show that longtime listeners will be aware of. Newer listeners may not be if you're catching up or if you're jumping in for the first time. I will also mention that this issue takes place post-Karen Page's death. I know that's a little bit of a spoiler, but it's not a big spoiler, let's be honest. Daredevil number one, at least volume two number one, came out many, many years ago, almost two decades. Man, that's depressing. But as mentioned, we are looking at Daredevil Father number one from June 2004, featuring a cover by Joe Cazada himself. And here we have the shadowy figure of Daredevil leaning forward, lunging toward the reader over a silhouette of a Hell's Kitchen skyline. And there's a variant cover that is just pencils. And looking at those pencils, I think Cazada really let the colors do the work here. Bear in mind, that's an observation, not a criticism, because I believe as an artist, as somebody who's going to present this to people in comic book format, which includes color as an art form, you should use all of your resources to tell your story. So I don't feel this is a case of laziness, this is a case of using color as a storytelling device. I do find it interesting that we have this black background, and then there's white forms on that black background forming the city. These are everything surrounding Daredevil. Daredevil's moral code, good and bad. That's how the law looks at things. No degrees, good and bad. That's Daredevil's world. However, Daredevil, of course, is all red and shadowy. He's the splash of color, and that's his ambiguity in straddling that good and bad world where Daredevil doesn't really fall into either. Don't get me wrong, Daredevil's a good guy, but is he doing the right thing by the law? Is the law doing the right thing by justice sometimes? Daredevil falls right in the middle of that crevice, people. Not an easy place for him to be, for either identity. As mentioned, the color is a very, very big storytelling device within the issue itself, too, especially the color red, which is a sign of anger, of, of heavy emotion, and also kind of indicative of Daredevil's internal strife, as well as other characters. I'm not going to belabor the point. We're going to see more as we go into the issue. Now, at the end of the day, the cover is not exciting, but it is distinctive. There's not a lot of storytelling happening. It's a, it's a poster image. But if you put it right next to the current issue of Daredevil at the time... This stood out. It stood out as its own series, not part of the ongoing. And that gives Daredevil Father an identity of its own. Now, inside this cover is a story entitled Father's Day, written and penciled by Joe Cazada, inked by Danny Mickey, lettered by Chris Eliopoulos, and colored by Richard Eisenhove. This is fairly heavily reprinted. There's a trade paperback and a hardcover. But, as you probably guessed by the fact that I'm reading it on Marvel Unlimited, it's also available there, as well as Comixology, the Marvel app, and, the best part, Amazon Kindle, because you can go through the Two True Freaks link, support the shows there, get your digital comics, and the Kindle links over to Comixology. So if you're going to buy on Comixology, especially with Marvel, you get a chance to support Two True Freaks using the Amazon link, and it costs you nothing extra. So getting into the story itself, it goes thusly. It's Father's Day, and a very quiet evening in Hell's Kitchen and Daredevil's thoughts drift back to battling Jack Murdoch. Matt posits that Jack was a man of action, not of words, and Daredevil thinks of the things his eyes saw when they could see. Things like Jack's anger, Jack muscling locals, and the old man Matt saved, the very last thing he ever saw. Then Matt heads to Fogwell's gym, wondering if he has accomplished more as Daredevil than as a lawyer. He runs his hand across the poster of his departed father hanging on the wall in the old gym and wishes him a happy Father's Day. Later at the offices of Nelson and Murdoch, a new client 
client, Maggie Riley, and her husband, Sean, tell Matt that they want to sue New Jersey Power & Light. Maggie has cancer from their toxic waste and has come to the offices because she used to live in the neighborhood and she wants the best for this case. That best is Matt Murdock, the neighborhood boy made good. Matt senses something familiar about Sean and asks him if they've met, which Sean denies, but his heartbeat tells Matt that the man is lying. Elsewhere, we meet Nestor Rodriguez, the son of a slain city councilman who has returned from a self-imposed exile as the media mogul Nero. Nestor is watching his own behind-the-music-style program and looking at a newspaper that shows that Daredevil has cleaned up Hell's Kitchen and Nestor broods. Later, Daredevil hunts a drug dealer in Hell's Kitchen and scares the crook so badly that he turns himself in at a local precinct. Yet again elsewhere, a woman is having a romantic dalliance, if you know what I mean, which turns rough and then frightening as a knife comes at her face and the issue closes with her horrific scream as horrible things happen off panel and that is where we will begin our discussion of daredevil father number one the first thing that greets you when you crack open this issue is this picture of daredevil on a stoop and it's this really goofy ape-like daredevil not the very lean and athletic daredevil that kazada normally draws no i mean this is very barrel-chested very awkward and i was very put off by it but when i put on my podcasting goggles something amazing happened because because I realize what's actually being put on the page here is beautiful. Let's think about the context here. Daredevil is thinking about his father on Father's Day, which is normal for somebody who's lost their father. Of course, your thoughts are going to drift to your dad on Father's Day. Mine do. So think about that. He's thinking about Jack. And what we're seeing is this barrel-chested lug of a man that looks like Jack Murdock in the Daredevil costume. This is what I posit here. We're seeing things through Matt's mind eye, almost like a dream. But to be clear, we're not talking about a dream. We're talking about anthropomorphizing themselves, basically visioning the world. We all do it. The difference is he's never looked at himself in the mirror as an adult. He would have a concept of what he looks like from light refracting off a mirror. I mean, he would have some blurry, blobby idea, but he doesn't actually know what he looks like. Now, it's been discussed that blind people who lost their sight later in life or have ever had sight do see when they dream. So in their inner monologue, there are potentially visions. This is Matt's. This is how Matt pictures himself. Adult Matt Murdock in his own head looks like Jack Murdock because that was Matt's definition of a man when he was growing up, when he had sight. That was the vision that Matt had of an adult version of himself, who he wanted to grow into. Now, in this first 10 pages, we're dealing with an introspective moment where Matt's really thinking about the things that he saw and how they relate to his father. So Jack being on his mind, having that conception, is right at the forefront. This is what I would look like. This is what I imagine I would look like. And just so you know, I'm not talking out of my ass. The context is Matt starts thinking about the past and the images of his father as well. We have this image of Jack hitting Matt. It's Matt's point of view, sepia tone, and then there's blood flying from Matt. And the concept is Jack was not one for words. And it's true. Jack was not an intelligent man. Hence why he made Matt hit the book so hard. All he could do was throw punches. And it's kind of cool that Matt puts this idea of man of action, of hitting somebody against hitting the books. Kind of like the whole ethics, studying, arguing, logistical arguing of being a lawyer versus the very straightforward, hey, I gotta hit this guy to take him down, that he exists in his daredevil. The fact that red is the only color, again, comes back to what I mentioned on the cover. It's the color of anger. It's the color of passion. It is a very vibrant color, very warm color. It's also 
the color of Daredevil's costume. That is not a coincidence. That is further cemented by the fact that the next shot is Jack muscling somebody, looking at Matt. Matt's point of view, looking at Jack. Again, still sepia, but Jack's eyes are red. Again, the color of violence within him. Maybe the corruptive quality of violence, the passion of violence. That part of Jack that is within Matt that he wears externally as Daredevil. The red. The devil within. And that is the part of Jack that Matt is thinking about. The idea that have I done more as Daredevil than I have as Matt Murdock, lawyer? I've hit so many people. I keep hitting the right people more so lately than I'd care to admit. This is a paraphrase. There's a point where Matt really has to face the music. The fact that he has taken that violent aspect of Jack Murdock and turned it into a superhero career. The very thing that Jack tried to steer him away from, hurting other people, Skillfully hurting other people, yes, but skillfully doesn't really excuse it. Matt's world revolves around violence, the very thing that Jack tried to steer him clear of. So when we come back to that page where it's the personification of Jack in Daredevil's costume, looking at the context, looking at this flashback and the color red and what it represents, it's clear to me that's exactly what's happening on that first page. The question of, have I become my father? And of course, the follow-up question is, if I have... Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And this flashback does end with a third image of the old man, Matt's pushing him out of the way as the truck is barreling at them. And of course, that'd be the last thing Matt would see. Looking at the image here, the man's shirt is red. Perhaps it really was red. Perhaps this is sort of a re-envisioning of red. The idea that no good deed goes unpunished. And this thing, this moment of passion, this idea of I have to save somebody. I have to take action. Cost me my sight. Red seems to be intrinsically leaked to that. Although I'm freely admitting right now there may be more to that image as I have not read ahead and I will not read ahead. And I do remember a little bit of this, but not enough to make a statement here. So we move on. I really have to applaud Kazada for the mindset that he's bringing to Matt. And I know that there's some context to that, that while he was writing this, his actual father did die, which does change the perspective of who you are. If you were close to your father, even if you weren't close to your father... When that happens, there is a thought process of who am I? What part of him is in me? And that may be the truth for all parents. But Daredevil moves on and it's mentioning that the kitchen is quiet. Daredevil has done his duty. Something echoed in the newspaper down the line that Hell's Kitchen is nearly crime free because of Daredevil's patrols. But again, looking back on what we're we're discussing, the idea of Jack, that violence has caused this. Is this crime free Hell's Kitchen worth the cost? What is the cost, I guess, would be the question. Of course, there is the cost of time. I mean, when is Matt going to sleep if he's being a lawyer and a superhero? Injury, I mean, he's got to wear down at some point. This is going to take its toll. I think what's being asked here in a very roundabout way is Matt's wondering, what is my legacy? I know what Jack's legacy is. Even if it's not well-defined, Jack's legacy is Matt Murdock, the lawyer, and Daredevil, the superhero. Whether that legacy is a good thing or bad thing may also be on the table, but what is my legacy? When I leave this world, what am I leaving behind? The superhero? Or have I done enough good as, as the lawyer to offset that? And it's a valid question. Maybe Matt's too young to be asking it, but look at Jack's legacy again. Again, Daredevil the superhero, Matt Murdock the lawyer. These are two contradictory concepts. Matt, as a lawyer, upholds the law. He upholds the rules, the order, the system. As Daredevil, he completely supplants it. Yes, he says, I 
supplement it. That's a great justification. But if we're being completely honest, Matt is going against the law. Being a vigilante is against the law. Beating somebody up, even if it's a criminal, is against the law. Daredevil's not reading people their Miranda rights. Daredevil's not bringing them in. He doesn't have to have just cause to go into a home. He does it. He has no restrictions. Yes, Matt has moral restrictions in that costume. He has places he won't go, but they're not places he can't go. As cheesy as this sounds, it's also kind of important here, Daredevil doesn't deal with red tape. This person is beating up the other person. I'm Daredevil. I take action. This contradiction has its seeds in Jack, who tells Matt to hit the books to study, to make something of yourself, yet his actions show different. Jack got results by being violent, by taking action, by hitting something else besides the books. I mean, say what you want about the sport of boxing. It's still about two men beating the living out of each other. Yes, there's some skill to it. I'm not going to argue that. But if you've ever seen boxing live, it's nothing like Rocky. It's kind of off-putting in a lot of ways. So Jack is putting food on the table and a roof over Matt's head by beating people up, whether that's in the boxing ring or rustling people up for criminal types. Jack provided the means to hit the books by hitting people. And of course, Matt's wondering, have I accomplished more as Daredevil with violence? With hitting people? Than I have with my law firm, hitting the books, studying, arguing, defending with my mind and my skill versus me with my fists and my billy club. Frankly, Matt is a lot more like Jack than he would even care to admit. And as much as he makes Jack out to be the ideal father and this great man, Matt is also very, very flawed. We have to be honest. It's one of the reasons we like Daredevil. Daredevil is a man of law who becomes a vigilante. He's a man of faith who dresses as the devil. He's a blind man who can see more than anybody else. And Kazada really staples this idea of idealizing in when Matt goes and puts his hand on the poster and says, thanks, Dad. The poster is a safe version of the memory. It's an idealized version of Jack, who's standing there looking like a champion in his heyday, a celebration of that violence. Matt is literally having a moment at a picture of Jack celebrating a win, a violent win. Now, there are times when reading comics, I myself wonder, am I really doing myself a favor by reading about violence, about men hitting other men or villains or monsters, especially in the current climate of the world where violence is very real and very costly. But at the end of the day, this is fictional violence. This is something when we close the book is done and nobody in the real world is actually hurt. If this were occurring in the real world, things would be very, very different. One thing, Matt would be toast by now, just by generally his body giving out on him. But more importantly, I think if this were the real world and there was a person such as Matt, if this was setting in a world where we live now, Matt would have to ask the questions he's asking. There comes a time when one must self-examine and ask himself, who am I and am I on the right path? And to Kazada's great credit, he has taken the first 10 pages of this book, made it an introspective moment that really distills the idea of Daredevil down to that one true question. Is what I am doing right? He's exploring that question through Jack Murdoch, who wasn't perfect. And he's seeing that contradiction in himself. Simply put, these first 10 pages are spectacular. They're a great opening. So we move on to the, the more introductory part of the overall plot with Maggie Farrell. And of course, I immediately get suspicious because her name's Maggie. Maybe it's because of the Guardian Devil and the association with Kazada and that story. But I always wonder if there is some sort of evil plot brewing. And we first see her holding this picture of Jack. And I'm like, there's something there, but I don't remember what it is. And the frame is splashed with Old Spice, so Matt has the smell of Jack. 
His father's memory is always present, always haunting him. Now, within the context of this book, because of the given title, because of how we've begun it, I think talking about Jack and Matt's reaction and relationship with Jack is acceptable and it's advertised. We know what we're getting into. There's going to be something to do with Jack Murdoch. We're going in with our eyes wide open. We know the context. We're getting something to do with Jack Murdoch, and I'm great with that. In fact, so far, I'm enjoying this story. However, I think it brings up a question. How many times can writers beat the dead horse with Jack? I'm completely excusing Kazada here again. This is the title of the book. Daredevil Father pretty much evokes Jack Murdoch. We're cool. But Miller did it. Nascenti did it. Wade did it. Every writer I've ever seen has beaten this horse that Matt is motivated by his dead father, by the death of Jack Murdoch, which we know. The thing I want to see is Matt really coming to grips with that and moving on. If failure is that key element to Matt continuing as Daredevil, to motivating him, that first failure is definitely Jack Murdoch, well, there have been plenty of times Matt has failed since then, most notably Karen Page. Hey, we've even got Elektra. I mean, even though she came back to life, that's still a failure. He's lost the girl he loved. Somewhere she's in there, but he can never really reach her. And for those that are up on the current Daredevil book, hey, Kirsten McDuffie, enough said. But Jack Murdoch, I mean, Matt has to move on at some point. That's not a commentary for this, although it did evoke that thought process. It's pointed more at future writers of the book. Anyway, back to Maggie, and Maggie's husband, Sean, he's a bowl of sunshine. He's very angry, very irritable. I mean, just a bowl of sunshine this guy is. And he's wearing a purple jacket because angry people wear purple in the Marvel Universe. Just ask Bruce Banner. In all honesty, this guy actually reminds me a lot of Bruce Banner. Very skinny, glasses, just very Banner-like. And Sean's kind of a reminder that one man's treasured neighborhood that formed them, that they protect, is another's bad memory. Many people would work to get the hell out of Hell's Kitchen. It was given that name because at one time it was a rough neighborhood. Now it's being totally flipped on its side now. It's a very nice, beautiful neighborhood now, but it didn't get there quickly or smoothly. And for Sean, coming back here is just painful. So that's a neat contrast to Matt, who really idealizes the neighborhood just like he does his dad. And I kind of got hit in the face with the idea of that Maggie got ovarian cancer from this toxic waste. And Matt even points out she didn't get superpowers, she got cancer. This is how how it could have been for Matt, people. And it just bowled me over. Not only is there a real-world equivalent to this, that people do get cancer from toxic waste, but when you think about it, you have Spider-Man who got bitten by a radioactive spider. Radiation and, let's not forget, spider bites themselves kill people. You're dead. They can be recovered from, but stay with me. There's a point here. The Hulk gets blasted by a gamma bomb. Not only is the bomb scary, but gamma, you're dead. Yet we get Spider-Man and the Hulk. In the real world, radioactive waste is dangerous. It's irresponsible for companies to not monitor it and to expose people to this just to save a buck. And the consequences are grave and tragic. Even if you don't die, the sickness itself is horrific. It's grounding to see that for every Peter Parker or Matt Murdock, there's a Maggie Farrell with the real-world consequence. But it also made me wonder what kind of radioactive waste was Matt hit with that did this to him. A better question, and one that I honestly do not have an answer for yet, was Matt already special? Was there something about Matt that allowed that waste to react the way it did? Not just blinding him, but giving him these enhanced senses. Again, I don't have an answer for that, but it's a fascinating question. Maybe he was just young enough to shrug it off and develop. Maybe he had the X gene. It was a, a latent mutant. We may never actually know, but hey, there's a fertile area for a story to be written. Man, I'm just throwing out gold. Avoid Jack Murdoch. Tell me about Matt and why he's special. Why this affected him. To bring it back to Maggie. 
The office is dark. I mean, it's black as can be. Big shadows. Maggie's telling her story. It's just the characters, these talking heads illuminated by what would be a desk lamp. So there's little bubbles of light that form the characters. Otherwise, the room is completely dark, like a spotlight on these people, which does give a feeling of intimacy. So you're focusing on the characters and their plight. And the fact that this is ovarian cancer is pointed out. This couple cannot have children. Again, we get an echo of the theme. Matt's wondering about Jack's legacy and his legacy. Here we have people who will have no legacy. Their line ends there because somebody took that away from them. And that is emotional enough to invest me in this couple. Although if I remember correctly, this goes sideways pretty quickly. But that's to be figured out next week and the week after that and so on. There's something that stands out to this scene. Again, they're all in shadow. Matt's in this black suit. So Matt merges with his background. These other people are well-formed. Foggy, Maggie, Sean. Matt's this blob in a shape. He's a presence in the room. Almost like he's not there. He's in two places at once. Maybe he is. And there was one weird thing that bothered me. I mean, Matt not having a form, again, that might be an identity crisis, but Matt keeps calling Foggy Franklin, and Foggy keeps correcting him. Is Matt trying to put up some sort of pretense here, that he's the neighborhood guy that made good? Is he really buying into that, or trying to present that? It's something that never really registered for me. Even Foggy's like, what, Matt, what What's going on, dude? And then we have the scene where Sean insists that he and Matt's paths have never crossed, and Maury Povich determined that that is a lie. However, Matt's question is a bit odd. We talk about the neighborhood, Hell's Kitchen. We're talking about 538 acres, with over 40,000 people crammed into that. It is completely and totally possible that their paths didn't cross. There were people I went to high school with that I never, ever met. Never saw face-to-face. We're talking about a high school of 1,500 people that I had maybe 30 to 60 people I never laid eyes on, never crossed their path. So Matt's maybe thinking the world revolves around him, or is there something more? That we will find out. Now, for those that like when I get anal and give something the weeder treatment, we'll call it the Wheatment. We'll see if that sticks. Let's bear in mind that Matt and Foggy are New York attorneys. The NJPNL, New Jersey Power and Light, is in, wait for it, New Jersey. It's this whole other state. It's Gene Hendricks country, people. So we're talking potentially about practicing law across state lines. This caused a problem for me. It didn't stick right. So I double-checked it through several sources. An attorney must be admitted to the state to practice there and pass the bar in that state. In other words, this is going to be a huge fight to even get the proceedings started. Because, you know, in JPNL, they're going to have high-powered lawyers. They can fight this. Basically, like, put their hand on Matt's head so he can't hit him. Kind of like you do with a little kid. Uh, to add to that, they would have to maintain a New Jersey branch. Now, some attorneys in that area are licensed in both. They do maintain at least an office. So a physical location they may never set foot in, but we're dealing with technicalities. And there's no indication that Matt or Foggy have a New New Jersey branch. For story purposes, they may say that Matt and Foggy do have the license to practice in New Jersey. I sure hope so, or else they've wasted four hours in this discussion. A whole morning. So the book so far has been one ten-page introspective moment. We've had several pages of this legal drama, this sad drama. The next section is about Nestor Rodriguez, which I actually found really refreshing. It was a splash of diversity in which this book could have been really, really waspy. And in no way, shape, or form does it feel forced. Especially with Kazada's Cuban background, his ancestry, I feel like this is actually needed here. It's a good perspective. And you know what? I'm going to take a sidebar here just to mention that, you know, in my absence, there was this statement that the diversity of Marvel Comics led to its downfall, that they need to get back to what it was. That idea is preposterous. It's ridiculous. 
Are there instances where the diversity felt forced? Yeah, I mean, we're dealing with a case-by-case basis. Some things worked, some things didn't. But as an overall idea? No, it's completely ridiculous. Miss Marvel was selling well. Miles Morales is knocking it out of the park. I think as presented, the female Thor has been fantastic. A great storyline. Now, there are instances where I feel like they were maybe pandering to certain areas and those areas realized, hey, they're being pandered to rather than actually being serviced. But I'm not in those areas. I don't have a dog in the race. I'm just looking at it from the outside. And I think that whole idea is preposterous. Marvel's all about diversity. They had the first black superhero in Black Panther. But, you know, that's just my two cents on that as well. Back to Nestor Rodriguez. Again, this splash of diversity feels really good. And this interlude really piques my curiosity. And that's all it's there to do, I guess. I think using the whole behind-the-music type of scenario to lead into this character and give us the backstory is genius. I like the backstory that he's the son of a city councilman who did this sort of program, kind of like Guardian Angels, where they were watching over gangs, and then his father may have been killed because of that as a warning sign. His dad's death is very curious because he was murdered and found by Daredevil, and yet Nestor has connections to Matt Murdock. This could turn out to be very interesting, and I don't remember if it goes anywhere. Just to be completely upfront with you. We don't get a lot of Nestor, and I'm kind of curious to see him on next issue. Now again, if Father wasn't clearly stating its intent with the title, the theme would be a little bit annoying, because by now we get it. Kazada's building this idea that the father in the neighborhood, the person and the location, these formative hands that built these people are important. It's a good theme that Kazada's building here, and he's doing a good job. I mean, again, if the title had been different, it would have been really annoying, really, really heavy-handed. Here, it makes perfect sense. I know what I'm getting because of the title. I like that we're reminded that there's a heat wave coming, which of course, heat, pressure, you get it. And the fact that Daredevil's been doing too good a job, that the kitchen is basically deemed spotless. And that segues us back to Daredevil, who's back on the job, and admittedly, this scene felt really tacked on and not relevant. This is the only part of the book I didn't like, because we have this first act feeling like a short story, we have this vignette of Daredevil. This feels a little bit more like business as usual in a story that has been anything but. But at the same time, there's something to be said by Daredevil being obsessed. If this is cleaning house, he's doing it the OCD way. It's spotless because he's not stopping, he is relentless. I mean, yes, it's still funny to see the drug dealer turn himself in, arrest me please but that also means daredevil's been very very brutal how brutal has he been how many people has he been hitting and how hard has he been hitting them to make him that scary again no red tape just fists jack's legacy in action has matt made a difference as daredevil Or will he make a difference in Maggie's case? Of course, that's the question to be answered in future issues. And then we segue to a sex scene out of nowhere, and it gets kinky. And I thought we were going down a completely different path, and we don't really get a chance to ask why things are getting kinky. Because out of nowhere comes a knife, and things get really, really scary as it comes towards her eye. Ladies and gentlemen, Frederick Wortham just rolled over in his grave when this was presented. Admittedly, it's definitely enough to keep me coming back for the next issue. So far, nowhere near rage quitting. This brings us to our final verdict on Daredevil Father number one. Clearly, this issue wasn't the problem. This wasn't the thing that threw me off. Beyond an unnecessary action scene, this issue was really, really good. The introspection at the beginning really grabbed me early on, and now I want to follow that thought process. The story is admittedly decompressed and written for the trade, but it manages to sink its hooks in in the single issue form. Maggie's story is heartbreaking, and Sean's denial of Matt intrigues me, and I want to read more. Nestor Rodriguez has me interested. How does he factor in? I do not remember. I can't remember if he's a villain or another hero. 
Something like that, but I can't remember and I want to find out. It's very much like reading this again for the first time. Kazada's distended, roided-out daredevil used to really throw me off and annoy me. Now it holds a lot of promise. It's a revelation to me that Matt sees himself as grown-up Jack Murdock. And then we have to really be honest. Decompressed storytelling means that there isn't a lot of action. This is all set up. Yes, we get that action scene at the end, but it felt tacked on, not part of the overall story. But ultimately, this is coming across as a real character piece, and I'm really good with that. It has a really good statement that it's making so far, and I hope that continues into the second issue. This is so much better than I expected, and I remembered, and very much worth the read and worth the coverage. I cannot wait to get to the next issue. And I can't remember what it was I didn't like about Daredevil Father. But of course, that's next week in episode 94. For now, it's time to sign off. Of course, you can always find the show at twotruefreaks.com with other great podcasts. Of course, seek it out on iTunes or check out the RSS link for the podcatcher of your choice. I'm always at facebook.com slash daredevil podcast. Yes, it says Dave does podcasts, but that's because they won't let me change the name back. And of course, next week we pick up with Daredevil Father number two. Be there or be here. Until then, I am J. David Weeder. Justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Two True Freaks production and is made for entertainment purposes only. It does not draw profit for the material discussed, nor does it generate any general revenue. Daredevil and all related characters are copyright, Marvel Entertainment, all rights reserved. All opinions are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views of any other individual, entity, or organization. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only and the copyrights lie with the copyright holders. No infringement is intended. This show and the host Soul are both registered trademarks Marks of Demonzacor of Milan, Italy, all rights reserved. Count evil father, he lost his key. Dream of Ghost Rider when you hear his name.